Ephesians chapter 2. Continue our tour of heaven. And I think it just gets more exciting. I don't know about you, but it's just for me, this has been so edifying and so rich and nourishing and transforming even because it's encouraging us to put our eyes up off of the things of the earth and our earthly circumstances and our earthly vision and seeing things from heaven. It's a completely different perspective, isn't it? It's a completely different way to live and a completely different way to think. And God wants us to be like that. He wants us to live completely different lives than the lives of the most religious non-Christian. So when we talk about being different than the world, we're not just talking about being different than the guy that goes and gets drunk in the bar. We're meaning we are absolutely different than the guy who goes to church who's not a Christian and the most religious Hindu or the most religious Muslim or Jew. That's what it is to be different. Isn't that awesome? This morning we will continue in heaven, looking at things from heaven's perspective. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to verse 19. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now and fill me with your Spirit and fill each one with your Holy Spirit and enlighten the eyes of our heart, and help us, like Alan prayed, to receive from your word the marrow that will nourish us, God. And we pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember. Remember. Now, every November 11th in Canada, we celebrate Remembrance Day. Now, I assume you celebrate something like that here in the United States as well? Is it called Veterans Day or Memorial Day? So on November 13, you start seeing poppies everywhere. Is that true here as well? I've just forgotten. Do you wear poppies? Well, in Canada, we wear poppies. They come out around that time of year, and you wear it on your shirt. It's like a little red poppy, and it's based upon the poem that was written during World War I uh, in Flanders Field. And so there's a Canadian, famous Canadian, poet during world war one he saw all the dead the, the bodies that were buried and poppies were growing out of their graves and so he wrote a poem based upon these poppies called in flanders field the poppies grow check it out sometime so where i'm from in canada at that time of year you start seeing these poppies and it's called remembrance day actually it's celebrated all throughout the british commonwealth remembrance day we remember particularly world war one the First World War, we remember, but not only that, the wars and the people who have died to bring us freedom, essentially, in our countries. Why do we do that? Why do we have Remembrance Day? Why is that important? Do you feel that's important, to remember? What would happen if we never remembered, do you think? That's, that's the famous quote, right? 
Those who forget, who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it, right? Could you imagine if we just never remembered, if we never had remembered, say we never even taught about the wars in our school? Could you imagine? And the whole generation is raised without any knowledge of the past. We'd have a completely different world, wouldn't we? And we'd be doomed to repeat it. Remembering is very important. History is very important. And to God, history is very important as well. He wants us to remember. Uh, you remember in Deuteronomy, here let me just read a few verses from Deuteronomy. Just in Deuteronomy alone, God tells us to remember over 20 times. Just in Deuteronomy alone. But here are just some verses. He says in Deuteronomy 5.15, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Deuteronomy 7.18, You shall not be afraid of them, the inhabitants of Canaan, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Remember well. You remember what God did to Egypt, you won't be afraid of the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 8.18 You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Deuteronomy chapter 8, I encourage you to read it, maybe this week as homework, but it's all about remembering. And he says, remember that it's the Lord who gives you all these things. Don't forget when you go to the land of Canaan, lest you forget the Lord and depart from him. Deuteronomy 9, 7, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. There God wants them to remember their sin. So at one point he says, remember the the great acts that I did in Egypt so you don't be afraid. Remember the redemption that you rejoice. Remember your sin. And the last one I'll read here is Deuteronomy 24.18. This one is actually repeated multiple times throughout Deuteronomy. It says this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you this, this thing this day. So God gives these commands and laws to Israel. And after giving them, he says, Remember, you were a slave in Egypt. I brought you out. That's why I'm commanding you this day. You remember that I redeemed you. You remember. The redemption of the Jewish people out of Israel, the redemption of the Israelites, was that they would become a people who remember and praise God as a response to what he did. All the commandments and all the laws that God gave Israel through Moses, they were to obey as a response to what God had done for them in redeeming them from Egypt. A horrible situation, a hopeless situation. They were completely captive to the major world power of that time, and they couldn't get out. And God brought them out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm so that they would be a people who would respond to his deeds and give him praise. So, you could put it this way. You're redeemed, you remember, you respond. And there's a New Testament correlation as well, isn't there? We've been redeemed. God wants us to remember what he's done for us, that we've been redeemed, our sins, what we've been redeemed from, how we were redeemed. And then respond to him in praise and thanksgiving and worship to God. Jesus said... Again, on the Passover, actually. Here's the New Testament correlation to the redemption of Egypt. On the Passover, Jesus said, This is my body, this is my blood that's shed for you, for the remission of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. And so we do when we take communion. We remember Passover from a new perspective. We remember God redeeming us by his son's death on the cross. And then we respond. But if we forget, if we don't remember, and remembering is an active thing, isn't it? It's an active, aggressive thing to remember. If we forget the wars, we're doomed to repeat. We won't understand. If Israel forgot God's mighty deeds, they were doomed to forget God himself. 
and go their own way. They are doomed to be afraid of the inhabitants of Canaan. But what would happen if we forgot Jesus and what he did for us on the cross? Paul gives us the first command in Ephesians here. Chapter 2, verse 11. This is the very first one in Ephesians, and this is the first one and the only one in this section of Ephesians as well. You could divide Ephesians up into two. I think I shared this the very first time we met at All Saints. You can divide it into two. There's a doctrinal section, which is chapters 1 through 3, and then there's a practical section, which is chapters 4 through 6. This is the only command in the doctrinal section. Remember. Remember, he says. Now, what does he want us to remember? First of all, he's specifically speaking to the Gentiles at this point now. Now, before at the beginning of chapter 2, when Paul says, you hath he quickened when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then he says we were children of wrath, but he says we all at that point, right? He says we all walked along in the course of this world. We were all under the dominion of Satan. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. We were all children of wrath. At this point, he changes and he's addressing now specifically this is the Gentile Ephesian believers. And he wants them to remember. He specifically addresses them. And he says this to them. Wherefore, remember that you in times past were Gentiles in the flesh. You are called presently uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. This is a really interesting statement that he makes here. He says, remember that in times past you guys were Gentiles. Wait, isn't he, isn't he talking to Gentiles? He says, you guys were Gentiles in times past. But you're not Gentiles anymore. You're still called uncircumcision, but you're actually the true circumcision. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that. He says, we who believe are the true circumcision. Though you be called uncircumcision by those who are called circumcision. Those guys are called the circumcision, or so-called, but they're actually the true uncircumcision. And it's the true uncircumcision, it says here, he adds this, it's made by hands. There's a circumcision that's made by hands and there's a circumcision that's made by no hands. And when the Bible says not being made by hands, what it means is made by God. And you remember in the verse prior, Paul said, we are his workmanship. There's a connection between those two verses. We are the circumcision, the true circumcision, and we are his workmanship, the true circumcision made without man's hands. But by the way, it's not in the flesh. And see, when you see things from heaven's perspective, you don't look at the flesh. You don't look at the outward. You don't look at the earthly. You look from the spirit's perspective. And though someone may look uncircumcised or someone may look circumcised, if you only see them from the flesh, that's all you'll see. But if you see them from heaven, if you see them from the Spirit, you'll see way more than that. You'll say, oh, this man is actually not a Gentile. And this man, though he be called a Jew, is actually not. Isn't that amazing? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that from now on, we don't know anybody after the flesh. I don't size up you by the flesh anymore. I don't categorize you. I don't see you and label you and understand you according to what I see, according to the flesh, but according to God's word, according to the spirit, according to heaven, how God sees us. We've talked about this before, how we may look really sinful, right? No, I do. But from heaven, what does God see? Does he see any sin in me? whatsoever? Not at all. That's amazing. I might look like everybody else and I might die like everybody else, but there's actually a big difference because God sees me as his own, as his child, as his son. And that's how he sees you if you are trusting in Jesus. You're actually more than just another person like everybody else. You're set apart. You're a saint. Or... 
as Paul says here, you're a Jew. There's only two kinds of people in this world. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. This is bigger than race. I want you to understand this. If it was just a racial designation, then he wouldn't say you're not Gentiles anymore. There's a significance to being a Gentile and there's a significance to being a Jew. He says you guys were Gentiles. He doesn't just mean you guys were Spanish or you guys were Greek. Or He means something deeper than that. A Gentile was someone who was not God's people. It means the nations out there. If you're a Gentile, you're not a part of God's people. You're a nation. You're a goyim is the, Greek, is the Hebrew word. You're out there. But Paul's saying, you were out there. You were called Gentiles. You didn't belong. Now you're not Gentiles anymore. You're in. So don't just think when you think Gentile, a non-physical racial Jew. A Gentile represents someone who's outside of Israel, outside of God's people, outside of the church, you could say, because the church is God's people. A Gentile is someone on the outside. And you aren't that anymore. Now, Paul in verse 12 describes the condition of being outside. The condition of being a Gentile is described in verse 12. Here's what he says. There's five points, five details here in verse 12. He says this. Number one, when you were a Gentile, you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. That's pretty bleak. You're without Christ. You're without Christ. You weren't united to him. You had no relationship to him. And many Gentiles had no expectation of Messiah whatsoever. You might find a rare trace in the pagan world of an expectation of the true Messiah. The only one I can think of right now is the Corinth. That's the only one I know. But besides that mercy, the pagan world was almost completely and fully in ignorance and darkness. Even though God had given that promise originally to all mankind when Adam and Eve fell, that was lost or perverted. And when Moses came and wrote that down by inspiration, the Jewish people had the understanding of that. But if you were a Gentile, you, didn't have, you weren't united to Christ, you had no faith in the coming of Messiah, you had no expectation in the coming Messiah. You were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The word commonwealth here is politia, where we get the word politics, or polity, or the Greeks got the word polis, or city. The government of Israel, the commonwealth. You were aliens. What's an alien? When we think of an alien. Outer space, right? Someone who doesn't belong to this world extraterrestrial, right? If terrestrial is this world, an alien is someone who's not from it. You don't belong. Let me put that phrase another way. It says here, if you're a Gentile, you're on the outside of Israel, you don't belong to the commonwealth, or you could say, you're not a part of Israel, the nation or community that is governed by God. Or the theocracy. You got democracy, and all these other forms of government. And a theocracy is a government that's ruled by God. You weren't a part of that. God's people were ruled by God. You as a Gentile weren't ruled by God. You were not a part of that. You didn't belong to that community. In the next one he says, you were strangers from the covenants of promise. Notice promise is singular and covenants is plural. The promise is one the promise of salvation through Christ. But the covenants, Israel received many covenants. Israel received many ordinances, many things from God, but they were all out of that original promise of a Savior. Because God promised the world a Savior and Israel a Savior, he then made these covenants like circumcision and the tabernacle and the Sinaitic covenant at Sinai and on and on, the new covenant. But they're all coming out of this one promise this one original promise. Commentator Matthew Poole said of this, these are those covenants in which the great promise of Christ and salvation by him was made. The covenants were several 
as that with Abraham and that with Moses and differed in some degrees, but the promise in them was one and the same, which was the substance of each. So this original promise was one, and all these covenants just came out of that and moved toward the fulfillment of that promise. You were strangers. When you were a Gentile, when you were outside of that, you had no relation to those things. God repeatedly says he remembers his covenant that he made with Israel and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and so he acted. He never said that with the Gentiles. He might see Gentiles getting slaughtered. Maybe a nation gets extinct. God never looked at them and said, well, I've made a covenant to them that I should save them and redeem them and establish them and that the world would be blessed through them. I never did that. You were strangers. You were foreigners from that. You had no hope. You had no hope. Now, you find in the pagan world wishful thinking. They have their ideas, but none of them lasted. And even today, you have non-believers who talk about things like, well, I believe in reincarnation. I believe that I will see my family in the next life, they might say. They don't, they're not Christians. They don't believe the Bible. They have these wishful ideas, but the bottom line is they don't have any hope. It's wishful. And people die, and they, they might have this wishful belief, but it doesn't help them at that time. They, get all, they just cry, and they don't really have any hope that they're going to see their loved one. Paul said, we aren't those who have no hope. We don't mourn like those who have no hope, right? Paul said they have no hope. And here he says, you have no hope. The Jewish people, back in the day, the rabbis and all those guys, they used to say that a man without hope isn't really a man. They would say that, and they, they base that off a psalm, where it says, man without understanding is like the beasts that perish. So if you don't have any hope, then you're not really a man, they'd say. You're like a beast. The Bible doesn't say you are a beast. It says you are like one. You're like a pigeon. I usually use this analogy sometimes on campus, and I tell people that you just, you're born, you eat, you die. That's a pigeon. And you're like that if you have no hope. And lastly, he says you're without God in the world. The word there is atheos. What's that sound like? <laughs> it sounds like atheist. It's not quite an atheist. A theist is someone who believes in God. So an atheist is someone who does not believe in God. But an atheos is much worse. It's just no God in this world. Not that you don't believe in one. You have no God in this world. It means two things. It means you don't worship God and you are forsaken by God. You have no God. Now, they worshiped false gods, but the Bible says that those are no gods, right? And so it says it like it is here from heaven's perspective. From man's perspective, we might look at a Muslim and we might say, well, they believe in God and they have God in this world. From heaven's perspective, someone who's without Christ and who's a Gentile from Israel has no God. Can you believe that? An atheos. They have no God. They might worship a false God, but they really don't worship any God at all. And the true God has nothing to do with them. Atheos. What a horrible thing, huh? So he's not saying here that a person might not have a wishful fancy of the next life or even worship false gods or even think they're the kingdom of God like so many people do. But from heaven's perspective, a Gentile is a Gentile is a Gentile. They're outside of Christ, God, the commonwealth, the nation of Israel, the people of God. They have no hope. That's what a Gentile is. And Paul says, remember, you were once a Gentile. You were once a Gentile. You did not have God at one time. Now, it's interesting. In verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So at one time you were far off, but now you're in. At one time you were out, and now you're in. How? By the blood of Christ, in Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is that there's actually a reversal. 
Because you who were once Gentiles are now in. But those Jews who don't have Christ are now out. They did belong. And now they don't. They're out. And now this awful description of verse 12 actually, from heaven's perspective, applies to the Jew and the circumcised in the flesh. So while the circumcised in the flesh and the Jew looks at the Gentiles and thinks these things of them, in actual fact, the Jew is the one who actually, the Jew without Christ, is the one who actually now fits the bill of 12 and has joined the ranks of those Gentiles who actually don't have Christ. I'm not saying all Gentiles are in, and I'm not saying all Jews are out, but when you see from heaven's perspective, you see it differently now. It's not just racial. It's Do you have Christ? Are you in Christ? And do you belong by the blood of his son? Get the picture? If you were to share this with a Jewish person who doesn't believe in Jesus, they'd be blown away, especially the religious ones. If you were to tell them, now it might be intimidating at first if you're just looking at according to the flesh, but if you were to tell them, well, actually, you're not circumcised and you don't belong to Israel and actually... You are a Gentile. (laughs) They wouldn't understand. And they would see you as a Christian, as a Gentile. They would see you as a Gentile, as a non-Jew. It's quite fascinating. Now, this is a phenomenon that God is doing. This is not something man made up. This is a phenomenon. And Moses talked about this in Deuteronomy 32. Moses talked about it and prophesied this would happen, that at a time in the future that these non-people would become the people of God and those who are the people of God would become a non-people. And Paul talks about this in Romans 11. So Moses prophesied about it. Paul's now in it and he's saying, this is what's happening. This is what's happening right now. You guys who were once out are now in and those who were once in are now out. It's a phenomenon that's taking place. So I'd encourage you to do some more homework on that. Read Deuteronomy 32, read Romans chapter 11, and you'll see this. Now, what Paul is highlighting here is actually in the next verse, when he says in verse 14, he is our peace. He's talking about not peace with God per se here in that statement, but he's talking about peace between Jew and Gentile. He is our peace who's made both one. What are the both? Jew and Gentile. And he goes on to say, he's made both one, he's broken down the middle wall of partition between us and has abolished in his flesh the enmity or hostility. The hostility. Now I just want to take a minute here to talk about that. What is this hostility between Jew and Gentile that he's talking about? You guys believe that there is such a thing? A hostility between Jew and Gentile and enmity. It's old and modern. And sometimes as Christians, and especially sometimes like Peter and Jonathan and myself, who are raised in Christian homes, it doesn't seem to, we don't get it maybe because we're just raised from a young age to love everyone and, and to understand God's word. But this hostility has existed between Jew and Gentile for a long time, and it still exists today. And this is what Paul's talking about. What is this hostility? Where did it come from? Why is it here? Because it's here. And some people have said this. They said that it is the impassable relationship. It says, um, I have it written down here, nothing more is impassable than this. The Jew and the Gentile conflict, there's nothing more hostile and impassable than that. You see, where does it come from? First of all, let me say this. Where does the distinction between Jew and Gentile come from? Is that a man-made thing? Is all that hostility man-made? Is all that hostility just have its origin in some stupid decision back in the day? It comes from God. God actually made the distinction between Jew and Gentile. So that's where it gets a little complicated. It's like, well, there's this hostility. Where does it come from? It came from God. First of all, he is the one who chose a people out from the rest of the world. And he's the one who made the Jew-Gentile distinction. He did that. So 
If we want to understand this, we want to understand the present, we've got to understand the past. Where does it come from? God, Abraham, selecting a man and a nation out of the world. But why is that such a cause of hostility? And why did God do that, first and foremost? Well, here's the thing. And listen. God selected a people, made them his own, gave them his laws. And by the way, he didn't just make a people, but the laws themselves said, you are to be different and separate from the Gentiles. Why? Lest you be corrupted like everybody else. So God gets these people, he gives them laws, he insulates them from the outside world, that's his his desire, to keep them separate, not to be influenced by the pagan world out there. Remember Noah? The whole world corrupts itself, the imaginations are evil. Well, God is going to take a people and teach them and instruct them and protect them from the outside world. And the purpose of doing that is so that they would be a light to the world. The purpose of doing that is so that I can have a people that know me in this world of darkness and people and sin and people that don't know me. I can have a people that know me, that are different than the world, that walk in my ways, and that teach the world who I am. That was the original intent. Now that went horribly wrong, didn't it? Because what happened? Israel themselves rebelled against God. Pride. Israel thought, well, I was chosen from the world because I was something special. And likewise, the Gentiles look at the Jews and thought, well, how arrogant, we we must be something less. And that makes me mad. And what, do they think that they're better than us? Remember Isaac and Ishmael, God said it's through Isaac. Ishmael, what? Jealous. Jealous. And now hostile. Was Isaac and Ishmael different? No. Both were sinners. Don't think when you read this that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the good guys. They're all sinners. But God chose Isaac to teach him, to instruct him, and said, remove Ishmael. There's hostility right there. And as long as they, they keep thinking, well, I'm chosen because I'm better, or I'm not chosen because I'm worse, there's jealousy. That's not what God wants. He wants, to, he wants them to understand why he chose so you've got to see the root of the problem and not just the symptoms. Some of the symptoms, why do people today say there was hostility about, about the Jewish people? Is it because the Jewish people look funny? Is that why they persecute them and are anti-Semitic? No, that's a symptom. There's a root hostility that dates back to their election and their choosing but it manifests itself and I hate the way those guys look and I hate the way that, you know, like in um, throughout all the ages, the Jewish people were persecuted. Did you know that the Holocaust wasn't the first? Since the death of Christ, the Jewish people, since the destruction of Jerusalem, have been persecuted in almost every nation they go. And everywhere they go, they experience holocausts, mini holocausts, and expulsions and persecutions and death. Why? Because they're bankers? Because they don't look like everybody else? I know other people that don't look like everybody else, and I know other bankers too. But they don't get it. There's another reason why they're persecuted. Because Israel became worse than the other nations and ultimately put Christ to death and rejected him, the other Gentiles, and even those who profess Christ, said, Christ killers, Christ killers, they deserve to die because they put Christ to death. Those guys are so wicked. God gave them their law and instructed them and they, God chose them and that was, a, that was a point of hostility but look how they failed and now we can gloat over them and now we can kill them because that's obviously all they're worth. They're worth nothing. God chose them and it turned out terrible. They're worth nothing. They're a vineyard that didn't produce any good fruit. See the hostility here has its root in the election and in Israel's failure and the Gentiles pointing at them and saying, you guys are sinners. Here's another point of hostility the way the Jews treated the Gentiles before Christ. You see, Paul says here, he talks about a wall. Now, I don't have any doubt in my mind that he is thinking of actual, a physical wall that existed in Israel. That's not all he's thinking about. But this is in view. Now, let me just describe the temple for a minute. How many of you guys can sort of picture it in your head? Imagine in your head, see if we can do this exercise, Imagine a, rect- a rectangle in your, in your mind, okay? 
Imagine a little, a little rectangle in your mind. That represents the temple. And imagine the, the top of it is the north, south, and the side of it is the east and the west. Okay? Now, on the east side, imagine that's the front of the temple. You have a little rectangle, and at the east side is the front of the temple. Now, draw another rectangle around that, a bigger one. That is the court of the priests. The priests would go in there. There was an altar there, and only the priests were allowed to go around the temple. They could go in. Some of the priests could go in at certain times, and then one high priest could go into the holiest of holies inside, right? You got one man going into the holiest, many going into the holy, and then around the temple you have the court of priests, and only the priests could go in. Then draw another rectangle around that one. That's the court of Israel. Only the male Israelites could go in that one. Not the females, just the males. Not the priests. Oh, the priests could go, but just non-priestly Jewish males could go there. Okay? Now, to the east of that, draw a square. That is the court of women. The court of women. Only the Jewish, well, all, the, all of them can go in, but including the Jewish women can go in there. That's the court of women. And all of those courts are on the same level. They're all, there's no steps. They're all on one level ground. Then, completely south, draw a big square. And now imagine five steps go down, and then there's a big wall. And then 14 steps go down, and then there's the big court. And that's the court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles could go in there and no further. But it was on a whole other level. It was below. And this was for Gentiles who wanted to come and, and seek the God of Israel, for proselytes, for converted Gentiles, but they could never go beyond. And Josephus records that that huge wall had signs all over it saying, no foreigner is allowed to pass beyond this wall. If you do, you're responsible for your own death. And actually, they've dug those up. So archaeologists have already dug those up. And it says that no foreigner or Gentile is allowed to pass by this wall or else you'll be dead. No trespassing. That wall, Paul actually had a run-in with. In the book of Acts, chapter 21, when Paul went to Jerusalem, he went to go to the temple, and because he had a reputation as the apostle of the Gentiles, and he was preaching his message to the Gentiles, the people there saw Paul in the temple and assumed he had brought in a Gentile into the temple beyond that wall. Now, it's interesting that they would think that, right? Now, Paul didn't do that, but it's interesting because... Paul's own theology, ultimately, he could do that. But he didn't. He was respecting it. But they thought he did. And what's even more interesting is it says that the guy they thought that he brought in was a guy named Trophimus the Ephesian. Isn't that interesting? You can check that out in Acts 21. They actually thought he brought in this guy, this Ephesian. And this is after the event now, okay, that he's writing this. But it is interesting that it was an Ephesian man, an Ephesian Gentile. And they said, he brought in a Gentile into the courts, and they they were going to rip him apart and kill him, but the Romans rescued him. This is what Paul's thinking about, I believe, as he's writing this. But he's not just thinking about this physical wall. He's thinking about what that wall represents. That wall represents a division between Jew and Gentile and a hostility that's really old. And Paul knew that 2,000 years after he wrote these things, the hostility is not going to be gone. And the hostility has gotten worse. It's just changed. See, before the Jews looked at the Gentiles with disdain. They said, you guys are goyim. You guys are pagans. You guys are without God. You guys are without Christ. You guys are completely without the commonwealth. You have no hope. You guys are worthless. You're filthy and dirty. We're not allowed to eat with you. I mean, our own law tells us we're not allowed to eat with you. Our own law keeps us away from you because you guys are corrupt. You're going to corrupt us if we come near you. You guys are corruptors. You guys stay back. That was the attitude. Oh, if you see a Jew drowning, you should save him. If you see a Gentile drowning, you can let him drown. Hostility starts inflaming ancient hostility. However, the role has changed, brothers and sisters, since they put Christ to death and the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Now what's the view? Oh, ho! The Gentiles now look at the Jew. 
They say, oh, you guys are worthless. You guys are without Christ. You guys are without hope. You guys are without God. You guys are the real Gentiles. You guys are without the commonwealth of Israel. We're in now. Yeah, we, we read in the Bible here, the Gentiles now are the real Jews. You guys are nothing. You guys are worthless. You guys are sinful. You guys are corruptors and worth nothing but to be put to death. Save your fellow Christian brother if he's drowning. But if a Jew's drowning, let him drown. Payback. This is the hostility. He says here in verse 14, the middle wall of phragmos in the Greek with a PH. But what's that word sound like? Fragmentation, right? That's where we get the word. There's a wall that has fragmented the Jew and the Gentile. There's nothing more impassable. This is the relationship. This is the ultimate broken relationship that has a history that negotiation and treaty and good works and leniency does not heal. And we might not appreciate it because we don't maybe understand that history. Or we aren't Jews who have been treated by Christians in that way. Or we aren't Gentiles who have been treated like Jews in that way. But no negotiation can heal this. No treaty. No good works. A Christian can't go to a Jew and just give him a flower and say, I won't persecute you anymore. And the Jew's going to say, okay, you're good now. We'll just forget about the past. And no leniency either. Let's just all get along. Let's just put that behind us. Yeah, the slaughter of my family. Let's just put that one behind us. And 2,000 years of death and suffering of my people. Let's just forget about it. They can't do that. But Christ can bring peace between these two and destroy the hostility. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ can bring peace to a relationship that is so hostile and has been hostile for thousands of years? Do you believe that? And here's the application, the point of this message. If Jesus can bring peace to the most impossible relationship there is, Jesus can bring peace to any relationship. Let's see how he does it. Notice it's not by his teaching. It's by his death. In Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes far off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. He and no other, no possible peace in anything else. He is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of fragmentation, having abolished in his flesh, which means his death, the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and he came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them which were nigh. For by him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. How does Christ bring peace? How does his death bring peace to a relationship like the Jew and the Gentile? The key is found in verse 14 and 15. Amazingly. It's not just, well, he's died, so now we can get along. There's something special about his death that actually enables peace and brings peace. And here it is. And I'm going to quote the NIV because the King James disorders it. But in the NIV, listen to the order. Just listen real carefully. He himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by... How has he done it? By abolishing in his body or in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. How does he break the wall down? By abolishing the law or loosening the law, annulling the law with its commandments and ordinances or regulations. Now, when we read that ordinances, we get the idea of like kosher laws, ceremonial laws. That's not the word. That's not the idea. The word is dogma. Here's what one Greek scholar says. The law is one of commandments in decrees. And the idea is unchangeable decrees. God makes a decree and it's dogma. 
doesn't change. He says, what is in view is its character as mandatory. So we're not talking about ceremonial here. We're talking about the law with all of its commandments as mandatory. Commandments as dogma. That's the idea. Commandments as dogma. Commandments as decrees. Commandments that you must keep. That's what he's saying here. How does Christ bring peace? When he died on the cross, he abolished the commandments of dogma. And here's the key. It's in the way we relate to God that changes the way we relate to one another. Because before, when you're under the law, the only way you can relate to God and to others is by law. I have to obey this command. I have to be good. I have to keep the commandments and be obedient towards God. And therefore, I do this towards others. So Christ abolishes that in his death. His death brings grace. His death takes away the law. Jacob, you're not right with God by keeping commandments. Because by the way, you stunk at that. And so did I. And so did, so did I. And so did we all. And that was our problem. The commandments. Looking at one another based upon the commandments and how we relate to God as well. So, oh, Nathaniel, he's not keeping the commandments. He's a disgrace. The key is that he reconciles both unto God in one body by the cross and slays the enmity thereby. He freed us from the law. He brought us into grace. And now we relate to God by grace and to one another by grace. You see, the greatest divider of all in the whole was the curtain of the Holy of Holies. All of these divisions were because God's presence was there and you were divided by your holiness, essentially. The Gentiles were less holy than the, the women. The women were less holy than the men. The men were less holy than the priests. The priests were less holy than the high priest. The high priest went in finally once a year. And there was this one great divider. It was, it's our relationship with God. When that isn't right, then our relationship with others isn't right either. But when Jesus died on the cross, there was a veil, a huge veil that was ripped from bottom to the top or top to bottom by the hand of God, stating that not only is this division gone, but that division's gone, and that that division's gone, and the Gentile division is gone, because everyone relates to me by grace. Every single person, Jew or Gentile, now can have access to me, as it says here, we all have access, not just the Jew, not just the Gentile, we all have access to God by one spirit, by the cross. We all have the same access. Whoever now wants to can come by grace because you're all sinners. When I chose you and gave you these laws to keep you from being corrupted, it didn't work. You're all corrupted. There is only one way you can relate to God and that is by grace through Jesus. And there is no grace outside of Christ, is there? There's only one way you can relate to him. So the message is peace. As it says, and after this he came and preached peace to the Gentiles and peace to the Jews. We get in grace. Grace. So the healing of human relationships, brothers and sisters, not just the Jew and the Gentile, but let's say you have a broken relationship in your life. The healing of that relationship begins with grace. And it begins with how you relate to God by grace. It starts there. The cross makes us right with God by grace and we can be right with others because of that. So how does, how does, what is the Jew's response to this grace? Well, the Jew says this, my goodness, I realize now I wasn't elected because I was better than anybody else. And man, I blew it. I blew it. I was given all these commands and I corrupted myself worse than the Gentiles that I've been calling pagans all this time. I blew it, but Christ died for me. So I, I, I can't look at the Gentile with disdain anymore because I'm worse than he is. And I wasn't elected because I was better than he was. And I can look at him and just see myself as more corrupt. And yet Jesus died for me and for him. That's amazing. And then the, the Gentiles' response is, wow, 
God didn't choose the Jew because he was better. We're all the same. And if God had chose me, I would have done the same thing as the Jew. I don't look at the Jew and say, man, those corrupt, wicked Jews, I realize that he's no different than I am because God didn't choose him because he was different. We're both sinners. We're both sinful. And yet Jesus died for me and died for him too. Wow. Grace. The law of commandments is gone. We don't relate to God that way. We don't relate to each other that way. We relate to each other by the grace of Christ. This transforms, and it does, brothers and sisters. This isn't just theory. Because those Jews and those Gentiles who have known God's grace have been reconciled all across the world. Forgiveness and restored relationships come because of the grace of Christ. Does everyone understand what is being said from this text? Think about it. The most impossible old and modern hostility can be healed by one way, Jesus Christ and the grace that comes only through Jesus Christ. And that's the way God heals all of our relationships. So if you have a relationship that you can think of this morning that's not healed, that's broken, you know how you can heal it. You can heal it through the grace of Christ. Understanding how you both, as one man, relate to God. There's no difference in your relationship with God. You're both sinners, and Jesus died for you both. And there is only one way. And lastly, just in closing, in verse 19, the conclusion is, you were Gentiles, remember, but now you are not strangers anymore, but your fellow citizens with the saints and the family of God. The family of God is made up of Jews and Gentiles who know God's grace. It's a family that rejoices together. Why are you here? What did you do? I didn't. (laughs) Jesus and his blood brought me in. Oh, me too. Praise God. We can rejoice in that together. The household of God. So Jesus is our peace. Let's remember where we came from. Remember the redemption that he brought to us and rejoice together and respond to it in showing grace to one another and praising him. Lord, we thank you for your word. What a life-giving word and what an amazing gospel that doesn't just forgive us and make us right with you, but because of that gospel of grace that makes us right with you and that we have access to you by grace, God, we thank you that all of our relationships can be healed. And I pray that if there's any relationships in our life that need to be healed, I pray, God, that you would heal them by Jesus Christ and his grace and preach peace to that, Lord. Preach peace to all broken relationships. And we thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ can heal even the worst possible relationship there is, that no relationship is beyond repair. Teach us how to live from heaven, God, and see each other from heaven. See the lost from heaven. Teach us how to be people of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.